It wasn't that long ago, and it sounds like something that would be almost from an age past, but just in 2009, two brothers named Zolt and Giza, they were living together outside Budapest, Hungary, but they were homeless, and they literally lived in a cave. And they would spend their days, Zolt and Giza would, going out and scavenging for junk, and they would try to sell enough to buy food for that night or for the next day. Well, as they were out scavenging one day, a social worker came and found them and said, you need to come to a meeting. And the social worker brought Zoltan Giza to a meeting. And they came into a room and were surprised to see a bunch of attorneys there. And they didn't know what this was about, but they were informed that they were the sole heirs of their recently deceased maternal grandmother who had lived in Germany. And the homeless scavenging Zoltan Giza went from collecting junk to inheriting, in today's dollars, the equivalent of $5 billion. They went from having nothing to having everything. They went from destitute and hopeless to prosperous and affluent. Quite simply, for one reason, they had been chosen to be heirs. That was the only reason. And along those lines, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, because in very similar fashion, you as a Christian are one who was chosen by God to be an heir of his kindness and his grace, to receive from his hand salvation from your debt of sin that you owed to God. And you were given as the heir of God. You were given a spiritual fortune. You were given a wealth of benefits and gifts and honors and assets things which are incomprehensible, things which are eternal, things which are are heavenly. It's the only way to describe them. When you became a Christian, you didn't just gain salvation from sin. You gained an inheritance. You gained a bequest, a, a vast, immeasurable wealth of blessings from God. And these blessings are infinitely more important and valuable than some paltry $5 billion. And just like the two brothers in Budapest receiving legal notification of their inheritance, Ephesians 1 serves as legal notification of your inheritance in Christ. And we'll just consider one verse. Consider Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, if you're familiar with Ephesians 1, the whole chapter, you'll remember that this is a very Trinitarian passage. Verses 4, 5, and 6 speak clearly of God the Father's role in salvation of sinners. Verses 7 through the first half of 13 speaks clearly of God the Son's role in salvation. And of course, the second half of verse 13 and verse 14 speak clearly of God the Holy Spirit's role in salvation. And in fact, each of those sections Uh, sections is doxological in other words it points us to the glory of god verse 6 to the praise of the glorious grace of the father verse 12 to the praise of the glory of the son and verse 14 to the praise of the glory of the spirit and so given that verses 4 through 14 are clearly trinitarian speaking first of the father then of the son then of the holy spirit look what verse 3 does verse 3 stands as a summary. It is an introduction. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has blessed us with every 
spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And very often we slide over that and we mischaracterize spiritual blessings. Spiritual blessings aren't speaking of blessings to our spirit, although that's an impact. It's not speaking of spiritual things, just generally speaking as religious things. But no, this is a specific word in Greek, pneumatikos, and it means the blessing of the Spirit, things caused by the Spirit. And this makes sense. As verse 3 introduces the long declarations concerning God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In other words, the spiritual blessings that we have in the heavenly places are specifically blessings given by the Holy Spirit to the Christians. They're not just generally spiritual. They're of the Holy Spirit. They're by the Holy Spirit. They're caused by the Holy Spirit. Now, last week we looked at the Holy Spirit in the past in our short little topical study we're doing here just to establish a baseline for all of us and our understanding of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. This morning, I'd like to look at the Holy Spirit in the present And then next week, we'll finish up our very short study looking at the Holy Spirit in the future. Now, our focus primarily is going to be on the work of the Spirit. We could take so much time on the character of the Spirit. He possesses the divine mind. He He possesses all the glorious attributes of God. But because our time is limited, I want to hone our Focus now to the work of the Spirit, the blessings of the Spirit, and by the Spirit in this present time, in the church age. And so by outlining the blessings of the Spirit to those who know Christ, what you're actually going to see we're doing is we're taking a journey through the Christian life. Because your journey through the Christian life is focused upon the Spirit of God. And so in this journey through the Christian life, we'll look at some of these blessings of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit in this present age. And so let's start this journey through the Christian life, the blessings of the Spirit, and we're going to do 10 of them. Now, if you'll bear with me and be a little flexible with our preaching schedule, I was absolutely transfixed by my own study of this in in the past couple of weeks. Now, I ended up with so much I wanted to share that with your indulgence, we're going to do five of these blessings of the Spirit this morning. And then we'll finish the rest tonight, and I promise we'll get back to Deuteronomy on Sunday evenings, but we're going to just spend the day on this. And so we'll begin this morning, and we'll finish this evening. So we'll do four or five this morning, and then we'll do the rest tonight. So let's start this journey through the Christian life, and this journey begins with what we'll call, in our first blessing, a spiritual transformation. A spiritual transformation. And again, we're establishing a baseline. This may be new to some of you, it may not be to some of you. This spiritual transformation involves being brought to repentance from sin. It involves having faith in Christ. But to come to repentance, to have faith in Christ, there had to be an eye-opening. There had to be a gracious act of the Spirit of God whereby you could be changed. 1 Peter 1.3 says that according to the mercy of God, He has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There, grammatically speaking, there's no getting around this. You were caused to be born again. It wasn't that you made a decision to be born again. It simply happened. The agency, the cause of your rebirth is the Spirit of God. And once again, as Jesus famously told Nicodemus in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
that not only does this mean that God has given you an external call to salvation through the preached word, that's what's happening right now. The word of God is being proclaimed. The gospel is proclaimed. But the Spirit of God is giving you an internal call. Theologians call this the effectual call or the effective call. Meaning that the external call goes to all and is effective for some. The internal call goes to some and is effective for all to whom it goes to. He's opened your spiritual eyes. He's unstopped your spiritual ears. He's given a spiritual transformation which has enabled you to repent, enabled you to believe, enabled you to have saving faith as a gift from God. And this is the divine initiative in salvation. This is God taking the initiative And of course, the beginning of salvation has to be from the Spirit. Romans 3.11 says that no one seeks for God. No one. It's not that a person was looking for salvation from sin and and sort of stumbled across the gospel of Christ and, and the sinner and God sort of met halfway and salvation occurred. That's not it at all. No one looks for salvation of their own accord. This is holy, divine initiative. Theologians call this the doctrine of regeneration. And it's directly spoken of in Titus 3, 5, that he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So this is the new birth. This is being made into a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 tells us this. This is the spiritual transformation, the recreating work of God It's spoken of in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know what's so marvelous about the fact that this is 100% a work of God, that this is 100% divine initiative? What is so marvelous about this is that because you didn't ask for it, because you didn't seek it, because you didn't cause it, that at a moment in time that you can't even exactly pinpoint, your spirit was transformed by the Holy Spirit to be enabled to have faith, to repent. What is so marvelous about this is that to whom does all glory go? All glory must go to God. You have no part in your salvation except to sin. That was it. God's part is everything. And so this immediately from the baseline creates worshipers because our gratitude is such that we cannot credit our intellect we cannot credit our heart we cannot credit somehow a good decision we can't credit chance we can't credit fate we must credit only god and god alone you received a spiritual transformation that was the beginning of your spiritual journey as a christian well the journey of the christian life continues with what we'll call an inward manifestation An inward manifestation. Ten days after the ascension of Christ into heaven, he kept his promise of the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, as the apostles were gathered together from heaven, came the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And immediately indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the apostles began speaking in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. At the sound of the wind, thousands who were staying in and around uh, Jerusalem for Pentecost came running and they heard the gospel of Christ being proclaimed by the apostles in 15 different languages. Peter preached his famous Acts 2 sermon and Peter proclaimed that all who would repent 
would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the third person of the triune God himself. Now, we have to understand that this was a transitional time when God, for the very first time in history, would indwell all of his believers with an actual inward manifestation of the Spirit of God. And so there's more emphasis on the Holy Spirit indwelling new believers. And in fact, in the book of Acts, there are, so to speak, three different Pentecosts. The the first one, Acts 2, records the indwelling of the Holy Spirit into believing Jews, but that's to demonstrate that uh, the Jews will receive the Holy Spirit, but now God is going to expand these boundaries. Acts chapter 2 gives us that first Pentecost, but Acts 8 gives us what we might call a second Pentecost. Pentecost, and that records the coming of the Holy Spirit to believing Samaritans, the half-Jews, so to speak, the mixed race that were generally hated by the Jews. A believing Jew might say, well, of course the Holy Spirit came to the Jews, but to the Samaritans, now that's a whole new thing. And then there was a third Pentecost, so to speak, in Acts 10, and that records the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell Gentiles, Gentiles to a Jew were on on par with dogs. They were considered subhuman. A Jew might even say, okay, definitely the Holy Spirit coming to a Jew. I can kind of understand the Samaritan because they have Jewish blood. But this guy, what on earth? But the Holy Spirit coming is clear to the Jews, to the Samaritans, to Gentiles. And so during these transitional times, there was somewhat of a delay We wouldn't doubt that the apostles were saved and yet they didn't receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit until Christ sent the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The Samaritans in Acts 8.14 received the word of God. They were believers. And then later, Peter and John came and prayed, quote, that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on any of them. And then Acts chapter 10 records the family of Cornelius the Gentile who feared God but they received the Holy Spirit while Peter was preaching to them. So why is there a delay? Why is there sort of a slow motion effect in the book of Acts? You remember when you were learning to drive a car and you were very, very dangerous because you could only think of one thing at a time? That if you put your turn signal on, you forgot to actually slow down for the turn. If you focused on changing lanes, oh look, there's no one there, but you dropped 40 miles an hour uh, while you were changing lanes. If you came to a four-way stop and three other cars arrived at once, your brain exploded in panic and you just stayed stopped until they all went because you're only able to think of one thing at a time. And this is very similar to what's happening in the book of Acts. The Lord has sent the Holy Spirit in a visible and manifested fashion to, so to speak, slow down and give slow motion so that we can concentrate and not miss that this is the most astounding time in redemptive history that the people of God are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's not just a passing thing. We get a slow motion version to understand this. So the big question then is, is this the norm? Is this the pattern that one believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and later on receives the Holy Spirit? Well, the rest of the New Testament would indicate, no, that is not the norm. That is not the pattern. Salvation and the indwelling of the Spirit of God are simultaneous and for every single believer in Christ. How sad it is that in the heresies of the charismatic movement, 
that there are so many that have been told, well, you might be a Christian, but you don't have the Holy Spirit. That now you have the varsity Christians and the junior varsity Christians. And because somebody longs for God and they think they don't have the Spirit of God, they're told, well, if you just perform these certain manifestations and speak in tongues or do this or that, then you have the Spirit. And so, of course, what are they going to do? They're going to pretend that those things or do something to say they have the Spirit. And yet it could all be avoided by simply reading the Bible. 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 16, says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Not in some of you, in all of you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy. You are that temple. All the pronouns you in those two verses are plural, meaning the Holy Spirit dwells in the church as a whole, and in every individual who's truly regenerate, every single one. Romans 8, 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Did you catch that? What this is saying is that there's no such thing as a person who belongs to Christ and does not possess the indwelling Holy Spirit. We're all the same in this. We're all the same. And this is such a comfort because the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Christ, He's the one who keeps the promise of the Lord Jesus that He would never leave you, never forsake you. I always chuckle a little bit when I hear Christians praying for the presence of God. You don't have to pray for the presence of God. God indwells you. What you should pray for is to obey the presence of God. You received an inward manifestation. Well, the journey of the Christian life continues. We'll call this blessing an official association. An official association. By coming to faith in Christ and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you have now become officially associated into intimate fellowship with the church of Jesus Christ. And if you're a true believer, then the Spirit of God himself testifies to this in your spirit. Romans 8, beginning in verse 14, says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What is this official association? Well, the scriptures call this the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit now, the baptism of the Spirit, this isn't some ecstatic experience that happens to you sometime after salvation, like the charismatic movement has misled hundreds of millions of people to believe. Uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit isn't something that happens when the band goes from the key of G to the key of A flat. Uh, it isn't something that happens when the drummer really goes crazy and the Spirit has fallen. No, the drummer's just playing too loud, that's all. It's not something that is manifested in any way, shape, or form. It's not experiential. It is positional. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, literally, the immersion of the Holy Spirit speaks of you being placed into, immersed in, the privileged group known as the church. And so again, there's no such thing as a Christian who has not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Immersed in placed into the body of Christ. 
Paul makes it clear that all Christians have been baptized, immersed into the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. There is a um, made-up doctrinal position that's very famous, it's very popular, it's a, it's a popular position in charismatic circles. And that is to characterize the Holy Spirit, and they'll say it something like this. The Holy Spirit is a perfect gentleman. He will never impose himself on you. If you invite the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit will dwell in you. But again, he's a perfect gentleman, and he will never impose himself, and so you have to ask. And then you get this supposed second experience of grace where you're now fully saved or whatever they want to call it. Well, the perfect gentleman argument doesn't hold up at all because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. You didn't have a choice. You didn't come to faith in Christ and say, hang on a minute, I, I'm going to wait a year or two for the spirit because I'd like to sin a little bit more. No, you were made to drink of one spirit. You know how you found out that you had the spirit of God that was in retrospect. Oh, that's what happened. No wonder I'm different. No wonder my, my family likes me now. Uh, no wonder I want to know the word of God because I've been made to drink of the Spirit. And no Christian has ever said, wow, God is so oppressive that he would make me to drink of the Spirit of God. No. By the way, there's an obvious applic- application to this fact, and that is water baptism. Water baptism symbolizes not only our purification from sin and our death and our resurrection with Christ, it also symbolizes us being placed into, baptizo, immersed in the membership of the church universal with all the believers of all the centuries. And so for someone to be baptized and yet not make a real commitment to the local outworking of the church, the local church, that's an oxymoron, it's a contradiction. Baptism says, I am part of the body of Christ. Well, every once in a while, I'll get an email or a phone call from somebody in, in town saying, I'd, I'd like to be baptized. And I'm always, that's great. You come, make a profession of faith, join the church, go through our membership class, we'd be happy to baptize you. No, hang on a minute. I just wanted to show up and be baptized. We're not a drive through baptism service because baptism says, I am immersed in the body of Christ and I'm joining the church. And how terrific is this baptism of the Holy Spirit which has placed you into the body of Christ? Because of this, the true church, true believers enjoy a genuine and real unity of the Spirit. Did you know that? Ephesians 2.18 says it's by the Spirit that both Jew and Gentile have access to the Father. Now, obviously, we can get off track because we're sinners and we're commanded to maintain this unity. Ephesians 4, 2, and 3 says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so that tells us that this unity isn't organizational. It's not based on an organization of any kind. It's not based on a structure. It's not based on a man-made denomination or even a perfectly functioning local church because those don't exist. But the unity is based in the spiritual fellowship that we have because we all know Christ. And of course, the admonition we've already heard is to maintain the unity of the Spirit. How do we do this? In the bond of peace. 
And so a great application is to ask ourselves the question, are you one who works to maintain unity, to maintain our bond together, or do you erode it with selfishness and with self-centered motives? The Apostle Paul told us exactly how to do this. He said in Philippians 2, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than what? Yourselves. That's how you maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So you've received an official association. We'll talk more about this at the Steadfast Conference in early October, but there is no such thing as the Lone Ranger Christian. Well, I'm not a Christian. I just don't want to be part of the church. No, that means you're not a Christian. I, I, I'm a Christian, but I just don't want to commit. I'm going to go to seven, eight different churches. I, I don't really want to commit. No, you're associated that's like a child being born into a family and the baby uh, sitting up in the, in the uh, uh, hospital and saying, thanks, mom and dad, appreciate you being here, but I'm going to kind of go live off on my own right now. No, you're part of the family. It's an official association and it happened at the moment you were saved. You were part of the church. Well, the journey of the Christian life continues with what we'll call a paradise registration. A paradise registration. You ever have that sinking feeling of going to a hotel where you thought there was a reservation for you and at the front desk with 11 people behind you in line, you hear the awful words, I'm sorry, I don't see a reservation in your name. And everybody behind you, you can feel the tension. You can feel it. And now with everybody wearing masks, there's even more tension with it as well. How horrible would that be to hear that in heaven? To arrive and stand before God, I'm sorry, we don't have a reservation in your name. Well, the Holy Spirit has guaranteed that this will never happen. Just like Jesus told the repentant thief on the cross, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. In the same way, the Spirit of God has certified your future arrival in heaven. This is what theologians call the sealing of the Holy Spirit, that he seals us in Christ forever and ever. And right here in Ephesians 1, we see this work of the Spirit. Look with me at verse 13. Ephesians 1.13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. What is this being sealed? It's a, it speaks of a security measure. It's the same word used to refer to the sealing of a stone used to close a tomb to prevent it from being disturbed. It's used of closing a building up to lock it up, to put barriers in place, to make it impossible to enter. And what does the sealing of the Holy Spirit accomplish? Verse 14, the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This word guarantee, it literally means a first installment. It's the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit who's the pledge of a full inheritance. In other words, the Holy Spirit is never leaving you and thus you're on solid ground that your salvation in Christ is totally secure because payment for sin has been dealt with. You are paid for in full. The Holy Spirit is not going to follow somebody to hell. The Holy Spirit, if he is with you always, that means you will always be with the Lord. He is a guarantee. 
Many years ago, Sylvia and I missed a connecting flight, which wouldn't have been all bad, except we didn't have the money to buy new plane tickets. And we were stuck someplace we didn't live. And that was a problem. But God was very gracious. We were standing there, Sylvia in prayer, me in panic. That's kind of how we usually do it. God graciously sent an older gentleman who just came and struck up a conversation with us. And we had a nice conversation. And he said, so what's happening with you? And we told him what was happening. And he said, come with me. And I hadn't seen the little name badge that said American Airlines on it. And as long as he was with us, we were fine. He took us past a long line of waiting customers that we were tempted to kind of do this at. And he struck up this conversation, kept talking. We walked past them. We went back to this nice office and sat there and he said, I'm sorry, all we have left is uh, first class. Would you mind flying first class? No, that'll be fine. Is filet mignon okay? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll suffer through that. And he said, stay with me. And as long as we stuck with him, we would make it home. He even walked us to the gate to make sure we got on the right flight. The Holy Spirit has guaranteed that you are registered at the front desk of heaven. He's guaranteed this. 1 Peter 1.2 says that you're saved according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, meaning the setting apart, the reservation has been confirmed. In fact, spiritually speaking in Christ, you've already died. You're already seated with Him. Colossians 3 verse 3 says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Revelation 21:27 promises that entrance into the heavenly kingdom is absolutely guaranteed, quote, for those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, a registration book, and your name is there. By the way, just in case you wonder about when your paradise registration was made, the Spirit of God guarantees your entrance into heaven because Revelation 13, 8 Revelation 17.8 says that the names of the saved were written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. And this totally makes sense, doesn't it? Verse 4 of Ephesians 1, even as He chose us in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world. So of course it makes sense that in Him you also, verse 13, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. All those that God has chosen will make it home, and the Holy Spirit is the guarantee. So far, a spiritual transformation, an inward manifestation, an official association, and a paradise registration. The journey of the Christian life continues with a worshipful illumination. A worshipful illumination. And I think we'll spend the rest of our time this morning on this. We have to start here. How do you know God? How do you know to even worship God? All that's tied into knowing God and worshiping God is tied into what theologians call the doctrine of illumination. But the understanding the revelation of God, understanding our worship of God, these two ideas, revelation and worship, they're so interconnected that you really have to consider them together. Now, 1 Peter 1 is our key in understanding and unlocking the the ideas of illumination given by the Spirit. We looked at it last week, but flip over with me once again to 1 Peter chapter 1. And in 1 Peter 1, we get tremendous clarity 
regarding the work of the Spirit in making the truth of Christ comprehensible to our finite minds. And we learn so much just from three verses. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 10. And we'll learn about the Spirit's role in illumining the truth. 1 Peter 1, verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Very quickly, why do angels long to look in the salvation? Because they've never had to be redeemed. They don't know what it's like to be an enemy of God and to be transformed into a friend of God. But look at what we learn about the Spirit's role in illumining the truth. All the prophecies and the explanations of the coming of Christ in the, in the Old Testament, they're by the Spirit, by the Spirit of Christ. We also see that the prophecies are comprehensive. They cover the sufferings of Christ, his glorification after his resurrection. And we learn that these prophets wrote these inspired texts as a service to you. Now, how does this go? It goes like this. Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. And when you heard the word of Christ preached, the gospel proclaimed, verse 12 here says, This preaching was by the Holy Spirit. This means that there was a power in this preaching because the Spirit of God was empowering the explanation of the the word of God, of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you didn't, by your own intellectual ability, come to faith. You came because the Spirit of God empowered the preached word. Paul told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 2, 4, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The preached word demonstrated the power of the Holy Spirit to penetrate the hearts of the listeners. When Paul arrived in Philippi, and he preached the gospel to women gathered by the river. Acts sixteen fourteen says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This is the word of power. This is the, the work of the Spirit in power in preaching. Paul said the same thing to the church at Thessalonica. He was reminiscing about what had happened when he first came to the city. And he writes to them in 1 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You could not know the word of God, you could not know the gospel of Christ without the illumining power of the Spirit. And again, Paul reminded the Corinthians that the only reason they grasped the gospel was because of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Now, listen very carefully here. The problem with receiving the truth of the gospel is not that someone is somehow mentally deficient or intellectually incapable. That's not the problem. Unbelievers can learn the Bible They can learn all about the Bible. They can even recite the facts of the gospel. But the problem 
is a spiritual disinclination, an aversion, a reluctance. And so the Spirit intervenes to contradict this spiritual apathy, this spiritual darkness. The Word of God has to be illumined, lit up by the Spirit of God. And so the Spirit brings light. He brings understanding of the truth of the Scripture. The Holy Spirit aids us as believers even in seeing the value and the worth and the joy and the applicability of the Word of God. These two are so put together, the illumination in the Word, that if if a Christian says, I'm not particularly interested by the Bible, then he's not a Christian. The Word is always illumined by the Spirit. It's the illumination of the Spirit which causes this phenomenon during the act of preaching that we would call implication and application. And it's so wide and so varied. When we preach a message from the Scriptures, when we talk about the Bible, in some sense, every one of you are taking something slightly different that God would have you to learn and have you to remember, have you to apply. And I think of it like this. The Word of God is like a laser-guided missile and it finds precise targets in your hearts and your minds, and the Holy Spirit is the one that lights up the target. The missile is coming, and the Holy Spirit says, hit right here, and it gets you exactly where you need. For some of you, wounds are sewn up, and there's healing. For others of you, wounds are inflicted because they're necessary. This is, by the way, why James says in James 1, 19 and 20, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If you're defensive, if you're angry toward the preached word of God, you stunt your own spiritual growth by your recalcitrant attitude toward the word of God. Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 and 20, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, meaning the proclaimed word of God. In other words, the quenching of the Spirit is in the context of the preached word. And Paul says, don't do it. Did you catch this? When somebody says, I'm hearing the word of God preached, but I'm not getting anything out of it. Who is Paul blaming? Is he blaming the preacher? No, he's blaming you. He says, don't quench the Spirit. Learn, grow. So clearly the word of God must be illuminated by the Holy Spirit. But how is this connected to worship? How is this worshipful illumination? Well, in John chapter 4, you know this story well. Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at a well, and this woman asked him about true worship. And in the climactic end of his answer, Jesus said in John 4, 23 and following, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, slightly off topic here, the big question is, which spirit is Jesus speaking of? The human spirit or the Holy Spirit? Because the text doesn't say. Well, you don't have to make a choice. You must worship in spirit, in that your worship is genuine from an internal heart of faith, and the only way you can do that is because of the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't make any difference. A true worshiper worships in spirit from a regenerated heart by the Holy Spirit and in truth. Now, why is this so important? This is important because without truth, you cannot worship. You cannot worship that which you don't know. 
You can't worship God without an understanding of divine truth, the truth of the gospel, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. So in other words, if you hear something that sounds good, Jesus came to be your best friend. That's not true. Therefore, you cannot worship based on that. Uh, Jesus was a good teacher who came to set an example of humility. That's not true. So you cannot worship based on that. Uh, Jesus has attributes which can be placed in order of importance and so we should worship him on the basis of the most important attributes. That's wrong. That's not true. That doesn't lead to genuine worship. That leads to worship of a Jesus of our own making. What do you call that? Well, One theologian warns that trying to worship without truth is idolatry because you've aimed your heart at a God that you made, not a God that's true. Basil of Caesarea wrote in the 4th century, he said, quote, It is impossible to worship the Son except in the Holy Spirit. It is impossible to call upon the Father except in the Spirit. In fact, let's clear up something of a commonly misunderstood passage. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but, what does it say? Be filled with the Spirit. What's the context of Ephesians 5.18? The context is what's happening right now, right here. The gathered assembly of the church. In other words, instead of your former pagan ways of trying to use drunkenness to bring on some sort of spiritual high, instead of that, be filled with the Spirit. And he goes on immediately to say, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what does it mean then to be filled with the Spirit in the context of the gathered worship of God's people? What does it mean? The parallel passage of Colossians 3.16 tells us, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. So what does this mean? It means to be filled with the Spirit is to be bathed in the Scriptures. That's what it is. Worship, which is bathed in truth. It took some time on this part of our journey of the Christian life in the Spirit because we depend on, solely and wholly on the illumination given by the Spirit of God through the Word of God to be able to worship in spirit and in truth. You cannot do this on your own. You can't be a true worshiper. There's an event that happened before Pentecost, and it is before Pentecost, but it gives us a wonderful picture of what it means to worship in spirit and truth. And I think this will bring it all together for you. This little event happened with only three people. It was on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection of Christ. Two of the disciples of Christ are confused about what had happened, why Jesus had to die, and Jesus comes alongside them, keeping his identity from them. Luke twenty four twenty seven says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They're walking seven miles from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus. That gives them just over two hours for the Lord Jesus Christ to explain everything that the Old Testament says about himself. This is the greatest Old Testament sermon ever, and it's not recorded. Well, you remember what happened. They arrived at their home. They sat down at the table. 
Jesus was in there with him. He even took the bread and he prayed and he broke it and he gave it to them. And two things happened at once. At that moment, the two men recognized him. They saw that it was Jesus Christ raised from the dead. And the second thing that happened is that he disappeared. He vanished. I I don't know how fast it was after, but it must have been something like, oh, look, it's, and he's gone. Well, what did they do? Well, they ran back to Jerusalem to find the 11 apostles gathered together and to tell them what happened. And while these two men were relaying these events and telling them that Jesus had appeared to them, In that room, Jesus appeared instantly in the midst of all of them and caused 13 heart attacks right then and there. But before these two men ran back to Jerusalem, but after Jesus had disappeared, they had a short conversation. They commented to each other that what had been happening in their own spirits while in the presence of the Son of God while he had been explaining the scriptures to them, illumining the Bible to their minds, Luke 24, 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Their hearts burned within them. It's It's a word that means to be kindled into a flame. So what happened They were in a state of worship before the living God because the word of God was being explained to them and illumined by God. Was it the Holy Spirit illumining the word? No, because Jesus was there doing it. But they were in a state of worship, worshiping the living God because the word of God was being explained to them. Do you see why truth is so important? You cannot worship properly without truth. And the more truth you know, the more you grasp of our great and mighty and holy and magnificent and all-knowing and all-powerful and all-wise and all-loving, glorious God, the better worshiper you are because you're worshiping now in truth. This is why in the church of Jesus Christ, if they will not give truth, they're not creating worshipers, they're creating frauds. Because now all you have left is emotion and you sing a song with four words in it 500 times because you don't know anything else. Instead of singing hymns that tell us of our great God the Father, our great God the Son, and our great God the Spirit. Well, there's five. We'll do five more tonight. But I hope I've started to convince you that as heirs of salvation chosen by God, are you starting to see that you possess every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Let's pray for just a moment. Our Father, um, these truths are marvelous and they're, they're beyond our comprehension and they go over our heads so often and yet we strive to know you more and we're thankful for the Spirit of God that illumines the, the truths of Scripture to us. But Lord, this inheritance, these spiritual blessings, these blessings by the Spirit, of the Spirit, caused by the Spirit, they are only for those who would come to faith in Christ. And from our vantage point, Lord, we would beg you and ask you to bring more to faith. We would ask you for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, even in our midst or watching online, who does not know Christ, who has not repented of his sin, who does not have the Holy Spirit. But we pray even in these moments, the Spirit of God would graciously give them the new birth would give them a recreated heart and open their eyes and unstop their ears 
to see Christ and to hear the gospel and open their hearts to believe, just like we read with Lydia. In these very moments, as we are seeking to honor the Holy Spirit, I can't think of a better way to honor the Holy Spirit than to ask Him if He would graciously show His might and power by regenerating many hearing this message. Would you show the truths that we have outlined this day? And may we, by your grace, see the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in us. We thank you for our journey of the Christian life that we've begun speaking of this morning. And I pray that tonight, Lord, as we go through all the way to the moments preceding our own death in which the Holy Spirit ministers to us even then, I pray that we would grasp these truths that we would walk in greater confidence and joy in you because of them. And again, Father, we beg you, we ask you to bring one or two or five or ten to saving faith. May the Holy Spirit do his work this very hour. And we pray in Christ's name.